Would you turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And we are going to talk about wonderful things together today on this Easter morning. You know, all of us live in a world where we hear so much bad news, but don't we enjoy good news? And I know in your life, you've had those moments where some news got to you and it really lifted your heart. Maybe it was something small from a long time ago. It didn't seem small at the time. Maybe you tried out for some sports team and then you got the news. You made the team. Man, that, that made you feel good. Or maybe it was sometime after that where you applied to get into a college and you got an acceptance letter and that really lifted you. That, that, that's great to hear. Or maybe it was you applied for a job and you were selected to work that job and you were so glad to hear you got the job, you were hired. Or maybe sometime later you got the promotion or you got the raise. We like things like that. Or maybe some of you, you got the news, you're going to be a parent or you're going to be a grandparent. All these things are wonderful things. We're so glad with all the bad things in life that we have these moments where we hear something good. Well, today on this Easter morning, we're going to be reminded of the greatest news of all by far. Because we're going to look together at the gospel. Now, do you know that word gospel? That word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. And that word literally means good news. Isn't that something? So as we to summarize and maybe label the message of Christianity, the, the label for it is good news. This is good news, that God had a plan to reconcile broken humanity to himself through Jesus Christ. It is good news. And so let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, as we begin. Now I would remind you, brothers, here it is, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul, writing to these Corinthians, says, I want to remind you of the good news. I want to remind you of the gospel. And immediately he goes into the content of the gospel. Now look at verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says here, I'm going to tell you about what is of first importance. In other words, I'm going to tell you what is most important of all. I'm going to tell you and remind you what is the very heart of our message in Christ. And it is there we have a crucified and risen Savior. That is the gospel. We have a Savior who died for us, was buried, and was, was raised from the dead. Now, through the years, many people have forgotten the gospel. Here's Paul even saying, don't forget the gospel. Some people through the years have tried to substitute something other than a crucified and risen Savior to say, no, no, the essence of Christianity is this, just be nice. We say, no, that's not the gospel. It's wonderful to be nice. We want to be nice, but that's not the heart of the message. Some people have substituted this one. You know, the essence, if you pull it all down, just love your fellow man. We said, no, that's a great thing we should do. Jesus told us to love one another and love our neighbors, even love our enemies. But that's not the heart of the message. That's not the good news. Others have substituted the gospel for just this. Well, the essence of it all really is just keep the rules. 
Some of them will just go, we'll give you this one. Just keep the golden rule. If you do that, you're good. Just do to others as you'd have them do to you. That's the essence of it all. No, it's not. That is wonderful. That is a teaching of our Lord. But that's not the heart of the message. That's not the good news. So see with me together today that the good news is not a set of rules that God gave us to keep. The good news is that Jesus lived and died and was raised up to save us. So let's go to this gospel, this greatest news of all. What Paul says is of first importance, and let's look at it. Verse 3 again. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So the good news begins with Christ dying. Now how is that good news? We're not accustomed to that. When somebody dies, that's bad news. And maybe somebody anticipating where they think I'm going with this would say, oh, I get it, I get it, it's Easter. So Jesus dying, bad news, but good news, he was raised. No, it's better than that. Because even the death of Christ is good news. Now, how can that be? Well, Paul tells us two things here to help us there. First of all, the death of Jesus was according to plan. The death of Jesus was God's plan plan. It is good news. Paul says here, it's according to the scriptures. So Jesus died on purpose for a purpose. The very death of Jesus was foretold for us in the scriptures. So when we see Jesus dying on a cross, this is not the plan of God failing. That's the mission of God succeeding. Remember, Jesus took on flesh and blood in the womb of a virgin so that he would then live on this earth a perfect life that you and I cannot live, but to give that flesh and blood on a cross where he would make atonement for our sins. Indeed, his death is according to the scriptures. We might say, what scriptures? Where did the prophets tell us that one would die like this? Well, how about Isaiah chapter 53? And Chip even led off our service with it. 700 years, consider it, 700 years before there was such a thing as crucifixion, before the Romans ever came along and developed it, we're told that someone is going to die for us in that measure, in that way. Look with me at this. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 4 and following. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds... We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. The prophet Isaiah goes on and says this. He poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We're just talking about the death of Jesus. That it is good news because it was indeed according to the scriptures. But not just there. How about Psalm 22? Psalm 22 describes the same crucifixion centuries beforehand. Psalm 22, 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. Listen, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
But then we can step back and consider in the Old Covenant all of those animal sacrifices that came before Jesus. All of those bulls and goats and lambs that shed blood. All that was pointing ahead to when Jesus would come and be the once and for all final sacrifice for all the sins of the world for anyone who would believe in him. So the death of Christ, it is good news. The good news begins there. Not only because it's according to the scriptures, but Paul says here, he died for our sins. There's good news. So let me ask you here, do you know that? Do you know that you have sinned? For you to fully appreciate the good news that Jesus died for your sins, you need to be among the people who acknowledge, oh, I, I'm among the sinners. And the scriptures help us here. In Romans 3, verse 10, we're told this, speaking of people like us, there is none righteous, no, not one. So nobody here in the room today, nobody watching from home can make the claim, oh, but I'm righteous on my own. I have performed perfect righteousness. None of us can say that. And that's what God says about us. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23 says this also about all of us. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. All of us have sinned. But then we're told of the penalty of sin in Romans 6, 23 and elsewhere. We're told the wages of sin is death. And amazingly, Jesus died that death for us. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sinfulness. And surely Jesus didn't die for his own sins because he had never sinned. When Jesus died on the cross, he's dying for our sins. It's the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever known. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So understand, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died the death that you deserved to die yourself. His death was to make atonement to cover your sins. His death satisfied the righteous wrath of God for your sins. So a sinless one died for you, a sinner. And today I'm praying for you that you'll have this critical turning point in your life. For some of you where you'll, for the first time in your life, you'll acknowledge, I can't fix this. I'm a sinner and I can't fix it. I can't start trying to follow a bunch of rules and somehow make myself worthy of God. A critical turning point. If you'll acknowledge what the scripture says of you, I'm not righteous on my own. I cannot save myself. I have sinned. How about this? Can you say this? I have sinned and I know now that that makes me deserving of death. Maybe you know this, but the scripture doesn't just describe a physical death, but the book of Revelation says there's a second death. It says the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And Jesus died to save you from that. He took your death for you. Recently, I was listening to a podcast, uh, Focus on the Family, and they were featuring the testimony of Jackie Hill Perry as she told her story, how a life of much sin came to know Jesus as her savior and a new life in him. And here's how she described that turning point that I pray you're gonna experience today. At the age of 19, she said this happened. She said, God spoke to my heart and showed me that the sin that I loved and enjoyed so much deserved death. The interesting thing was that it wasn't just sexuality that was my problem. I started to reckon with the fact that every single thing that I loved and enjoyed deserved death too. I started to make an, a survey in my mind of everything that I loved and its consequences. 
And all of that was being motivated by grace. And all of this was being motivated by the Holy Spirit, who in 2 Corinthians 4 says, he is lifting the veil from my eyes for me to see life, to see glory. She went on to say this, but I saw another thing. It wasn't just that the scriptures condemned my life. It was that the same scriptures that condemned my life had hope for me as a person. She said, I remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. She went on to say this. I figured that if God is trying to get me to turn from this stuff, that he must be the only alternative for me. He must be the satisfier. He must be the good one. He must be the right one. He must be the true one. He must be the good one or he wouldn't want me to come to him. And so I was able to see Jesus for who he was. I love that story. Turning point was I'm a sinner and the things I love to do deserve death. And then to realize Jesus took that death. If I believe in him, I won't perish. So again, I'm going to ask you, do you see your sins today? Do you know that your sins make you deserving of death? Maybe you've wondered, why such, why such an extreme message of Jesus dying? Because our penalty is extreme. Jesus is taking that extreme punishment for you out of unimaginable love for you. Jesus took your sins and he died for them on the cross. Consider the magnitude of that. And it's Easter morning, and I want you to think on that. When we can so quickly say, Jesus died for my sins, but would you think with, about, with me about the death Jesus died? It was not quick and easy and painless. Remember, Jesus was betrayed by Judas and he was arrested by the authorities. Jesus had never done anything wrong. And so they had to get false witnesses to come say things about him that they might have him killed. You remember in all these false accusations, the authorities then were beating Jesus, punching Jesus, spitting at him. They were whipping him. You remember there's a time when they mocked him, they put a crown on him and a robe on him, but then a crown of thorns shoved down on his brow. Can you imagine that? And then these hateful crowds jeering and cheering and calling out for him to be crucified. And then he goes to the cross. That's all before the crucifixion. And then at the cross, spikes were driven into his hands and into his feet. And so the crucifixion began for Jesus at nine in the morning on that Friday and he died over a six hour period on that cross where he breathed his last at 3 p.m., the scriptures tell us. A torturous all day death that he died for us. The other day I was giving blood or having blood drawn for some medical things I was doing and uh, I don't like giving blood. Anybody? Anybody like it? Unusual if you enjoy it. But I've learned through these years that it's not that big a deal. I can take it because I, I estimate it. Look, it's just, it's just a little needle and it's sterile. And the person, though I don't know this person, this person's doing this for my good. They're trying to help me. This is for my health. So I will submit to the drawing of blood. And so they get you to choose your arm and then they go to business. I can tell you this. I never look. I won't look at the needle going in. As tough as I try to be, I won't look at it, but I look away. But then my mind engages something. I've just done this for years because I don't like this, but I just, I just put it in, 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 um, in perspective. And I think, you know, Jesus, this is just a little needle that's sterile and for my good. And this is happening. But Lord, you took spikes in your hands and feet for me. And it wasn't a sanitary, sterile place. And nobody involved in that was doing it for your good. They were torturing you. you. You did that for me. 
you, they killed you. you. You did that for me. It puts it in perspective. Listen, it's good news that Jesus would give his life for us. Remember when his disciples tried to stop the arrest? Because they knew this is a big injustice. And Jesus told them, put away your swords. We don't do it that way. He says, don't you know I could call legions of angels to call this whole thing off? Jesus did not have to go to the cross. He had all authority to call it off. He willingly went to the cross. That was the mission. This is good news. He died for your sins according to the scriptures. But then Paul says, not just that, he was buried. Christ was buried. Look at verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried. There's significance in that. This might be just for you today to solidify that, you know, he really did die. The fact that he was buried confirms that he literally did die. In fact, there's several things that tell us that he literally died. First of all, he was abused all day before he even gets to the cross through, through the night, the wee hours of the morning, then on the cross at nine, dies over a six hour period. But there on the cross, the Roman executioners, they had a way of determining, is he really dead? Is it, is it okay to bring him down? Is he dead? And so they would pierce that person. And so they jabbed a spear into the side of Jesus on the cross after he had died and outpoured blood and water, the scripture says. And they had the confirmation, he's indeed dead. Then these trained executioners who did this all day, every day, they pulled down the body of Jesus from the cross. Very clear, he is dead. But then the burial that's called out here in the scripture. He was buried. And we read about the burial of Jesus in John 19. Listen to this, John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Understand, Jesus did not just appear to die. Jesus died. Jesus didn't just merely pass out and come to. You don't pass out from beatings and torture and then six hours on a cross. He was dead in the burial and the burial preparations and the wrapping of him just lets us know Jesus died. He was buried and then he was raised, literally died and literally physically raised. Verse three again, for I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised. So let that reality sink in this morning that he did that. So think about this, the disciples, all that they experienced, they saw Jesus arrested. They saw those beatings take place. They knew of the crucifixion. It terrified them because they had to assume we're next. If our leader has been crucified, we're next. They are terrified, filled with fear, filled with despair. 
But then they saw him on the third day alive again, and it changed everything about them. They went from fearful to world-changing and bold. So this is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and was buried. And on the third day, he was raised to life. Hear the significance of that. Because of the resurrection, we see that Jesus indeed conquered our sin and conquered our death. Because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus' sacrifice for us was indeed accepted by God the Father. And because of the resurrection, everything Jesus ever claimed about himself, everything he ever taught has been validated. And through the resurrection, we see that Jesus alone is the one you should trust for your eternal salvation. I love it here. Paul then gives some evidences so that we can truly stand in the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection is not merely the empty tomb, though that's a good one. You can't have an occupied tomb and have a resurrection. So praise God, when they first went to that tomb that first Easter morning, it is empty. But that's not the only evidence. But then we find that our Savior appeared to many people, met with them over a period of days after the resurrection. So here's what Paul mentions in verse four, that he was raised on the third day accordance, in accordance with the scriptures, listen, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Paul's making it clear, this isn't a story. This happened in real time, in real places, to real people, they saw this, this historically happened. Paul even said at the time of his writing to these Corinthians, many of these people who saw him, they're still alive. This is verifiable. You could go check it out for yourself. So there is solid evidence for us to put all of our hope and faith in Jesus Christ, his resurrection. First of all, we're told, as we've already considered, ancient prophecies told us that one is going to come and die for us. Remember, we considered Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But also we have here post-resurrection, multiple eyewitnesses of that amazing reality. Saw him dead, now saw him alive, and it changed everything about them. I love this. This is helpful. Even former unbelievers became believers because of the resurrection. That'll change your opinion of someone. So Jesus's half-brother James, not a believer that he's the Messiah, until after the resurrection, now seeing him alive from the dead, knows, okay, you are the Christ. And he believed in him, became one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. Of course, Paul we'll talk about in a moment. But the transformed lives of these fearful disciples into bold proclaimers of this gospel, no matter what difficulty, no matter what persecution, even martyrdom came to most of them, willing to say, listen, do whatever you have to do to me. It is true. We saw him dead. We saw him alive. We have to proclaim this good news no matter what you have to do. And the changed lives that continue for everyone who has turned from sin and believed in Jesus, he continues to transform lives. But I love here too that Paul then gives his own life as evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preached and so you believed. What a testimony. Paul hated Christians. 
Paul hated the idea of a church, and he's persecuting believers, arresting them, and then he meets the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. And how do you explain the change in his life? To pivot from that to joyfully, courageously sharing the good news of Jesus, even as he's writing here to the Corinthians. How about another example of how resurrection transformed a life? In the Gospels, we read about Thomas, the one perhaps you've heard of as doubting Thomas. His story is told here. When Jesus was appearing to the, to the disciples there on that first Easter evening, for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas was having a hard time believing the resurrection until he had his own encounter with the risen Christ. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And now the question back to you, do you believe? What's your response to a crucified Savior, according to the scriptures, for your sins, a buried Savior, and one on the third day who was raised up? What is your response to him? Verses 1 and 2, where we began, really tell us the right response. Look at it again. Look at verse 1 again. Paul started this whole thing saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, that I preached to you. Here it is. Which you received. That's a key word. In which you stand. By which you are being saved. If. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus calls for a response. I would say that this truth is not a neutral truth. In, in my life, I would say I have a number of things that I would just put in the category of neutral truth. In other words, it makes no real difference to me. I'll give you some examples. One of the neutral truths in my life is that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I believe that. There's even that story about a cherry tree, and um, I'm inclined to believe that story too. But you might say, I don't know about the cherry tree, and I want to debate you on that. You know what? You know how interested I am in debating that? I will sleep while you debate any of that. Even if you want to debate whether he's the first president, I'd be like, I don't, I don't really care that much. I believe it's true. Or how about this one? I believe that we successfully put men on the moon. Some people debate that. You know how interested I am about that? I'll nap right through that debate. Because it makes no difference to me. It's just one of those neutral truths. I believe it happened. I don't have a reason to doubt that it happened. And so that's just in that category of got it. I'll tell you another one. I believe that Richmond is the capital of our commonwealth. Live so close by, I'd be insane not to believe that one. But if you wanted to debate it, I don't care. I'm going to go take my nap. <laughs> I'm not interested. It just doesn't matter. So to make sure that when we hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you don't put it in that same category like, there's no difference to me. You know, I was one of those people that 
believed in vain, like Paul said, for the early years of my life. People told me Jesus died. He was raised from the dead. I believed. I had no reason not to believe that. I heard that from credible people. I believed it. It just didn't matter to me. Well, that's just another thing. Okay, George Washington, that. I, I can just live my life. I was believing in vain. That was not saving for me. They didn't make any difference in my life. Listen, the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, these are precious treasure truths to embrace. These are truths that transform your life. We saw it in the disciples. Once you know that Jesus died for you and was raised to life again, that changes everything about you. You go from scared and misled to bold and joyful when you know him. We saw it in the life of Paul. And so is that happening for you? Do these words describe you as we saw in verses one and two? Have you received this good news as good news for you? Are you standing in this good news where you're trusting Jesus only, the one who died for your sins and was raised? And are you standing in that? Have you been saved? He says, you're saved if you hold fast to that message. But again, unless you believe in vain. Have you personally received this gospel? Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and the Savior of your life? Are you standing in this gospel and none other? But it is possible to just have that information and believe in vain. Do you know we're told at the judgment, Jesus said there'll be people who say to him at the judgment, hey, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I never knew you depart from me. They had some measure of belief, but not a saving trust in Jesus. We're told in the book of James that even the, de the demons... The demons believe, but they're not saved. And so the demons know about the crucifixion of Christ. They were there. And the resurrection, they know all about it, but they have never surrendered and trusted in them. They cannot do so. But maybe like me, at one time you believed in vain. It was just information. It was just tradition. It was an annual observance. That can't save you. Oh, but you can trust in Jesus and be saved today. When you walked in this morning, you saw all these chairs and you knew just because of your life experience, these chairs could hold you up. And so every one of you found your seat and you sat down in the chair. That's a good demonstration of what faith is like. You could have just intellectually thought, I believe in the concept of chairs. I believe that information, but it's when you come to that chair and you put your full weight down in the chair. You're, I'm trusting this chair is going to hold me up. That's a picture of what it's like. I see that Jesus could save me. I believe the information. He died and was raised. I'm now putting my faith in him. I'm resting all my hope in Jesus Christ and no longer in myself. Jesus said to believe in him. John 3, 16, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here it is. Whoever believes in him, trusts in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Or Romans 10, 9 and following, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on Jesus to save you. Like a drowning man calls out to a lifeguard to be saved, call on Jesus like that. Like a person in a burning house calls 911 in order to be saved, call on Jesus to save you like that. He wants to save you. He brought you here today to hear that message that you would trust in him and be saved. He has you tuning in now from home to hear that message that you might trust in Jesus and be saved. So would you do that today? I want to give you a few private moments right where you are to close your eyes and bow your head. And I'm not going to ask you to come forward or do anything right now, but right where you sit, 
would you be willing to acknowledge to God, maybe for the first time, that you are a sinner? You can tell him in prayer, God, I agree that I am a sinner. I've broken your laws. I've disobeyed you a lot in my life. I think it's wise when you're confessing that to even tell him you're sorry, Lord, and I'm sorry that I have broken your laws. I've disobeyed you. Would you also acknowledge what the Bible says is true that, Lord, now that I acknowledge I'm a sinner, I see that my sin makes me deserving of death, even the second death to be forever separated from you. I see that I deserve that. But now I know that Jesus died for all my sins. Now I know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now I know that if I believe in him, I won't perish, but I'll have everlasting life. Would you right now call on him? Ask him, Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. Lead me here. Make me bold for you. I want to share this good news all over your world. Now let me pray for you. Lord, I do pray for friends who are hearing that message who have understood your spirits drawing them to call on you. God, would you save men and women, save young people today as they rejoice in what you did for them and now trust you fully. May no one here believe in vain, but everybody believe in a way that leads to eternal life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.